This is The Celluloid Ceiling, a podcast about women in film, starting from the early days of Hollywood all the way up to modern cinema. Take a journey with me, your host, Becca, as I explore all the different facets of filmmaking and all the amazing women making these films. Well, welcome back, everybody, to The Celluloid Ceiling. I hope that you are all staying safe and uh, supporting the Black Lives Matter movements and donating where possible. Also, please um, do your part and help out and say something a little about Breonna Taylor, whose murderers are still uh, out there. And only one has been fired at the moment, so justice for Breonna Taylor. Sorry I haven't spoken about this in the past two episodes. They were pre-recorded before all of the um, movements and protests, so that's Maybe makes me seem a little not paying attention of me, but I promise I am. Uh, (laughs) um, Anyway, you're not here to listen to uh, that. Maybe you're here for some escapism, but I just wanted to bring it up anyway, because this is the time we're living in. And while if anyone listens to this and not in 2020, it'll be a very interesting (laughs) piece of history to listen to. So we are back in the early days of cinema. Uh, And we are actually doing writers today. So we're doing early writers. Um, Hopefully I can have a couple of other different cool experiences with other editors, but we are on to writers now. So like editors, writers weren't something that was really around from day one, since it was a lot of films that were just, you know, putting a camera somewhere and showing something happening. Uh, That soon changes when the silent film era begins. And... Like women directors, women screenwriters weren't shut out of the early days of cinema and often went on to be directors as well. Most of the time, women, or filmmakers in general, were wearing multiple hats, if you recall, uh, while making these films. Like most writers for film, a lot of these women actually started off as journalists first, and working in journalism before film is still actually something we see a lot of today. So let's get to it. Let's talk about some... Also, my voice... It's a little crackly crackly sometimes. It's just that lovely uh, allergies. Let's talk about Frances Marion. Marion was born Marion Benson Owens in San Francisco and her parents actually divorced when she was about 10 and she lived with her mother. She dropped out of school at age 12 after having been caught drawing a cartoon of her teacher. I guess that was maybe it was a bad cartoon. <laughs> she uh, transferred to a school in San Mateo and then to the Mark Hopkins Art Institute in San Francisco when she was about 16 years old. Marion attended the school from 1904 until the school was destroyed by a fire that followed after the 1906 uh, San Francisco earthquake. Jeez, that poor school. (laughs) When in San Francisco, Marion worked as a photographer's assistant to Arnold Genthy and experimented with photographic layouts and color film. So she then later actually worked for Western Pacific Railroads as a commercial artist and as a reporter for the San Francisco Examiner. She then moves to LA and Marion started working as a poster artist at the Morosco Theater and also was doing some advertising uh, for commercial layouts as well. In the summer of 1914, she was hired as a writing assistant, an actress, and a general assistant by Lois Weber Productions. And she actually could have been an actor if she really wanted to, but she preferred working behind the camera, which, I mean, come on, same. I mean, not that I couldn't have been an actor or anything, (laughs) I just prefer to be behind the camera, so I get it. Uh, (laughs) Weber ends up teaching her the ropes and becomes her mentor. 
And we actually talked about Weber in the director's episode, so it's kind of cool that they know each other and they're connected that way. So when Lois Weber went to work for Universal, she actually offered to bring Marion with her, and Marion decided not to take Weber up on that offer, which is interesting. And soon after, her close friend Mary Pickford actually offered her a job at Famous Players Lasky. And that's the job that Marion ended up accepting. So she ended up working on scenarios, which is kind of the predecessor of what we would call screenplay. They didn't really call them that. They were just like scenarios for films like Finch on the Cricket, Little Pal, and Rags. And Marion was actually cast alongside Pickford in A Girl of Yesterday, which was kind of cool. Even though she didn't want to be, you know, <laughs> an actress. And at the same time, she actually worked on an original scenario for Pickford to star in The Foundling. Marion sold the script to Adolf Zucker for $125, and the film was shot in New York, and Moving Picture World gave it a positive pre-release review. But unfortunately, the film negative was destroyed in a laboratory fire before the prints could even be made. That's unfortunate. Uh, There's a lot of actual fires that happen and have destroyed a lot of our early films. So Marion then traveled from LA to New York for the Foundlings premiere, applied to work as a writer at the World Films, and was hired for an unpaid two-week trial. Basically a baby internship, I guess. For her first project, she decided to try recutting existing films that had been shelved as unreleasable, and Marion wrote a new prologue and an epilogue for a film starring Alice Brady, who was the daughter of the World Films boss, William Brady. So the new portions that she wrote turned the film from a melodrama to a comedy, and the film sold for distribution for $9,000, and Brady gave Marion $200 a week at World Films. That's phenomenal for then. Uh, Gosh, that's sometimes phenomenal for now. (laughs) And uh, she became the head of the writing department at World Films, where she was credited with writing 50 films. And she left in 1917 when following the success of The Poor Little Rich Girl. Famous players Lasky signed her to a $50,000 a year contract as Mary Pickford's official scenarioist, or scenarioist, I guess. Marion was reported at this time to be one of the highest paid script writers in the business, which is... Like, amazing that this a woman is the highest paid screenwriter. And her first project under the contract was uh, adaptation of Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. So Marion also worked as a journalist and served overseas as a combat correspondent during World War One. And she actually documented the women's contribution to the war effort on the front lines. And she was the first woman to cross the Rhine after the armistice. So when she returned from Europe in 1919, William Randolph Hearst offered her 2000 a week to write scenarios for his Cosmopolitan Productions, and Marion actually shared a house with fellow screenwriter Anita Luce on Long Island. While Marion was at Cosmopolitan, Marion wrote an adaptation of Finney Hearst's Humoresque, and her success in adapting this particular novel and her friendship with uh, Hearst contributed to her decision to actually adapt another her story of Superman for her actual directorial debut. See, I like wearing many hats. <laughs> they always do in the early days of Hollywood. The film that resulted from this, Just Around the Corner, was a bestseller for the studio. And Marion actually directed one more film called The Love Light, starring Mary Pickford. And she won the Academy Award for writing in 1931 for the film The Big House, and she received the Academy Award for Best Story for The Champ in 1932. Uh, Both of the films actually featured Wallace B. 
Beery and co-wrote Min and Bill, starring her friend Marie Dresser and Beery in 1930. She was credited with writing 300 scripts and over 130 produced films, and she was the first writer to win two Academy Awards, which is just wild. She is a strong supporter of women's suffrage movement, and for many years she was under the control of MGM Studios, and after she became independently wealthy, she left Hollywood in 1946 to devote more time to writing stage plays and novels. And actually, writing stage plays and novels is something that they often either do beforehand, during, or after as well, these uh, early writers. She then published a memoir called Off With Their Heads, a serial comic tale of Hollywood in 1972, and died the following year of a ruptured aneurysm. So let's move on to her technical roommate, Anita Luce. So Anita was born Corinne Anita Luce in Sison, California, and her father founded a tabloid newspaper, and her mother actually did a lot of work as a publisher for that newspaper. In 1892, when Luce was about four years old, her family moved to San Francisco, where her father bought the newspaper The Dramatic Event. By age six, she actually knew she wanted to be a writer, and while living in San Francisco, she followed her unfortunately alcoholic father on an exciting fishing trip to the pier, exploring the city's underbelly and making friends with the locals. (laughs) This fed into Luce's lifelong fascination with low lives. That was a, a a quotation mark. I didn't write that particular line. (laughs) And loose women. In 1897, at her father's urging, she and her sister performed in the San Francisco Stock Company production of Quo Vadis. Anita continued appearing on stage, being the family's breadwinner, but unfortunately her father was caught up with them, his spendthrifting ways, and in 1903, he took an offer to manage the theater company in San Diego. Anita performed uh, alongside in her fa- father's company and under another name with a more legitimate stock company, so she's going to doing a little bit of both. After graduating from San Diego High, she devised a method of cobbling together published reports of Manhattan social life mailing them to a friend in New York who would submit them under her own name for publication in San Diego. So her father ended up turning out some one-act plays in the stock company and actually encouraged Anita to work in the field herself. So she then wrote The Inkwell, which was a successful piece for which she received a periodic royalties. So she then wrote The Inkwell, and it actually was pretty successful and would still get royalties from that play. She sent off her first attempt at a screenplay, the film was called He Was a College Boy, to the Biograph Company, and she actually got $25 for it. The New York Hat, which was a film starring Mary Pickford and Lionel Barrymore, and was directed by D.W. Griffith, was her third screenplay and the actual first one to be produced. And Luce dredged her real-life situations for scenarios. She dished up her father's cronies and brother's friends, also using the rich vacationers from San Diego resorts. And eventually, every experience became grist for her script mill. So this is where her, you know, coming into contact with the, what did I say, low lives and loose women (laughs) kind of came into play. By 1912, Luce had sold scripts to both Biograph and Lubin Studios. Between 1912 and 1915, she turned to 105 scripts, and of those 105, only four went unproduced. That's, that's a great ratio. She would write 200 scenarios before she ever saw the inside of a studio, which is crazy. <laughs> Accompanied by her mom, 
Anita joined the film colony in Hollywood where Griffith put loose on the payroll for Triangle Film Corporation at about $75 a week with a bonus for every produced script. Her first screen credit was for the adaptation of Macbeth, in which her billing came right after Shakespeare's. <laughs> what a what a duo. And when Griffith asked her to assist him and Frankie Woods in writing the intertitles for his epic Intolerance, she traveled to New York City for the first time to attend its premiere. Instead of returning to Hollywood, Luce spent the fall of 1916 in New York and met with Frank Crowninshield of Vanity Fair. They had an instant rapport, and Luce remained at Vanity Fair contributor for several decades. So Luce did end up returning to California just as D.W. Griffith was leaving Triangle to make longer films, and she ended up joining the director and her future husband, John Emerson, for a string of successful Douglas Fairbanks movies. The five films Luce wrote for Fairbanks helped make him a star. <laughs> when Fairbanks was offered a sweetheart deal with the famous players Lasky, he took the team of Emerson and Luce with him at the high income of $500 a week. And during this time, Luce, Fairbanks, and Emerson collaborated pretty well together, and Luce was getting as much publicity as, like, Lillian Gish or Mary Pickford were, which, for a writer, just a writer, she's not even acting right now, that's pretty great. Photoplay magazine labeled her as the Soberette of Satire, and in 1918, the famous players Lasky offered the couple a four-picture deal in New York for more money than they had ever been making <laughs> on the Fairbanks unit. So Luce Emerson and fellow writer Francis, who we just talked about, migrated to New York as a group. And Luce wanted Marion as his chaperone because she found herself attracted to Emerson, uh, a guy who was 15 years her senior. And she would prefer to call, or not prefer, she would call him Mr. E. The pictures for Famous Players Lasky were not as successful as their previous films, and that's partly because they starred Broadway headliners and not actual screen uh, acting people, so their contracts weren't renewed, unfortunately. And the scripts carried both names, but were mostly products of Luce. What a surprise. Uh, after Luce would claim that Emerson took all the money and most of the credit, though his contribution usually consisted of observing from bed as she worked. Much to the chagrin of her friends, her adoration of Emerson had manifested as sort of like subservience, which was really unfortunate for her. And when William Randolph Hearst offered Luce a contract to write a picture for his mistress, Marion Davies, Luce actually included Emerson in on the deal, even though he wasn't a part of it originally. Hearst liked the picture and getting Mary married was one of the few Marion Davies pictures that didn't lose money. <laughs> in addition to their films, the couple wrote two books, How to Write Photoplays, that was published in 1920, followed by Breaking into the Movies in 1921. So Lewis and Emerson turned down another picture deal with Davies, preferring to actually write for their old friend Constance Talmage, whose brother-in-law was an independent producer. Both A Temperamental Wife and A Virtuous Vamp were great hits for the actress. And the couple joined the Talmages and the Shenex at the Ambassador Hotel on Park Avenue. The Talmage and Shenex convinced Anita to summer with them in Paris without Emerson. Uh-oh. The adventure would end up as fodder for Luce's book, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. After one more film for Shenex and Talmage, 
the perfect woman in 1920, Emerson refused another contract with them. After working with Actors' Equity during their 1919 strike, he decided that the loose Emerson team should make the move to theater. Their first play together was The Whole Town's Talking, which opened at the Bijou Theater on August 29th, 1923, and received pretty good reviews. So after a little bit, Emerson and Lou's team got an offer to write pictures for Irving Thalberg at MGM. And of course, Emerson refused to go, and Luce took the 1000 a week salary alone. Ooh, that's a nice salary. <laughs> the first project that Thalberg handed Luce was Jean Harlow's Red-Handed Women, because F. Scott Fitzgerald was having no luck adapting Catherine Bush's book. Fitzgerald was an accomplished writer of, the, like, as you know, The Great Gatsby, uh, and was fired and replaced by Luce in a predominantly male-run studio system. The picture was completed in May of 1932 and was a smash and established Harlow as a star and put Luce once again on the front rank of screenwriters. At MGM, Luce happily turned out some scripts. Uh, however, she frequently had to use Emerson as a conduit to communicate with directors and other executives who balked at dealing with a woman on equal footing. That's unfortunate. She worked well to promote the idea that they were a happy couple and a writing team, and she bought a modest house in Beverly Hills in 1934, and during the day it was work, and at night it was parties by MGM studio executives or stars. In 1935, the time that the Writers Guild formed, she was paired with Robert Hopkins, who would later become a frequent collaborator. Their work on San Francisco, a film, got an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Screenplay. And by mid-1937, Luce had decided not to renew her contract with MGM, since her friend and supporter Thalberg's death in September 1936 things were not really going well at the studio and every film felt like a struggle to her. She settled with Samuel Goldwyn, who was formerly MGM and now the head of United Artists, for 5000 a week and almost immediately regretted it, but she soldiered on, working on practically unworkable scripts. She then promptly bought herself out of the United Artists contract and re-signed with MGM and bought a beachfront house in Santa Monica. And finally, after 17 years of marriage, Luce asked Emerson for a divorce, and he agreed. So MGM bought the film rights to 1936 smash Broadway hit The Women in 1937, and many writers had unsuccessfully tried taking a stab at the screenplay version of it, uh, but the studio handed it to Luce because... She was so good at adapting things, as well as veteran screenwriter Jane Murphin. And three weeks later, <laughs> Luce handed the script in, and he loved it. Unfortunately, the censorship board did not like that script at all, which, of course, they insisted on changing more than 80 lines in the film. Luce was apprehensive, but Kakor insisted she do the changes on set. When Hunt Stromberg, the last producer she respected, left MGM to produce independently, Luce tried to get out of her contract, but by then she'd kind of grown too valuable to MGM for them to let her go. So in 1946, she ends up moving back to New York. Once back in New York, she kind of gets back with her longtime friend, Francis Marion, and they work on an unproduced play for Zazu Pitts. A few romances came her way. 
and she starts kind of just working the play musical circuit and she actually ends up working on a dramatic adaptation of Colette's Gigi. Gigi opened in the fall of 1951 and would run until the spring of 1952. So Luz continued to write as a magazine contributor appearing regularly in Harper's Bazaar, Vanity Fair, and The New Yorker. So next we have June Mathias. June Mathias was born June Beulah Hughes in Leadville, Colorado. Her parents divorced when she was seven and her mother remarried to William D. Mathias, who was a widower and had three children whose name she actually obviously ended up taking his last name. So Mathias was educated in Salt Lake City and San Francisco. And while in San Francisco, she gained her first stage experience dancing and doing imitations in vaudeville. At the age of 12, she joined a traveling company, and at the age of 17, she became an ingenue, performing with Ezra Kendall in The Vinegar Buyer. Later, she appeared in several Broadway shows and toured for four seasons with the female impersonator Julian Eltinge in the widely popular show The Fascinating Widow. Supporting her now twice-widowed mother, she would continue to perform in theater for the next 13 years. Matthias was determined to become a screenwriter and accompanied with her mother, she moved to New York City, where she studied writing and went to the movies in the evenings. She entered a screenwriting competition, but despite not winning, her entry was so impressive that it did actually give her job offers. So her first script, House of Tears, would be directed by Edwin Carew in 1950, and it led to a contract in 1918 with Metro Studios. As one of the first screenwriters to include details such as stage directions and physical settings in her work, Matthias saw scenarios as a way to make movies into more of an art form. So actually the way that you see a script that's written today sort of with the... That's all because of her. She created the modern look of how we write screenplays, which is... Another thing that I didn't know was until I started researching this. It's it's amazing that these kind of things get, I guess, not wiped away. It's just forgotten. So Matthias later credited a lot of her success to a strong concentration on plot and themes. By 1919, Matthias and her mother had moved to Hollywood. And after only one year of screenwriting, she advanced to be the head of metro's scenario department and the only female executive at metro during her early years she had a close association with the silent film star ala nazimova and their films together can be marked by the over sentimentality in 1921 richard roland the head of metro paid twenty thousand dollars and ten percent of a gross earnings for vincent blasco ibn's novel the four horsemen of the apocalypse The epic bestseller had been considered unadaptable by every major studio, but Roland handed the book to Matthias for adaptation and was so impressed with her screenplay that he asked for her input uh, on who to direct and star in the film. Matthias had seen Rudolph Valentino in a part of Eyes of Youth, and she exerted her influence to cast Valentino in this film. Studio heads resisted hiring an unknown actor for a lead role, but despite many of other accomplishments, uh, this it was this discovery that would grow to be her best known act. For the same movie, she also insisted the studio hire Rex Ingram as the director. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse is one of the first films with an anti-war theme, and Matthias also injected some early depictions of alternative lifestyles. It featured a scene with German officers coming down the stairs in drag. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse was a success, thus becoming one of the most commercially successful silent films ever made and launching Valentino into stardom. Matthias and Valentino remained friends after the Four Horsemen. 
the older Matthias kind of doted on Valentino, uh, who was a beautiful, talented young man, and accounts state that Valentino regarded Matthias in a motherly way, calling her a little mother. Matthias was also one of the people who helped bail Valentino out of jail when he was arrested for bigamy, having married Natasha Rombova without finalizing his divorce to Jean Acker. Though the two were inseparable, their relationship became strained during Valentino's marriage to Rambova. When Matthias submitted the script for The Hooded Falcon, one of Valentino's pet projects, the couple deemed it unacceptable and asked it to have it rewritten. Matthias took it as a great insult and broke off all contact with Valentino. Matthias's position at Metro was called by Los Angeles Times the most responsible job ever held by a woman. Whew. She was arguably one of the most powerful women in Hollywood, and even said to be almost as powerful as Mary Pickford. Matthias had influence over casting, choice of director, and many other aspects of production. Her strength lay in careful preparation in shooting the script with the director, cutting out the waste in production, while at the same time sharpening narrative continuity. Gosh, this woman's amazing. After she spent seven years at Metro, famous players Lasky was able to lure her away with the promise that she could continue to write for her protege, Valentino. Matthias continued to survive in Hollywood despite being involved in two of the greatest financial fiascos of the 1920s. When Eric von Stroheim presented Goldwyn Pictures with his masterpiece Greed, following Frank Norris's novel McTeague very closely, it was 42 reels and 10 hours long. Stronheim himself realized the original version was far too long, so he reduced it to 24 reels, which is six hours. But Goldwyn executives actually demanded there be further cuts to it. But in the middle of production, Goldwyn had merged with Metro and Louis B. Mayer Pictures to form Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. And MGM took Reed out of Stronheim's ham and gave it to Mathis, with orders to cut it even more. And for this job, she assigned a cutter, Joseph W. Farham, and the film was reduced to 13 reels to just two and a half hours long. And in the process, many key characters were cut out, which kind of resulted in a lot of continuity gaps. So there was speculation on whether Matthias took part in the actual cutting. However, for contractual reasons, she was listed in the credits as a writer. And it was actually she who would be blamed for what Strodheim and his fans would call tampering with his genius. And Matthias had worked with Strodheim before and actually was really fond of his themes and therefore, uh, he thought it was l- less likely she would butcher his film unnecessarily. For the original production of Ben-Hur in 1925, Matthias fought the studio over uh, the casting and production for many months. And it was her idea to film the $1 million script in Italy. And the film would eventually come to just under $4 million. When she arrived, the original director, Charles Brabin, in his words, refused to let her interfere. Their production troubles were many, and uh, due to political troubles engulfing Italy at the time, resulted in disputes and delayed permissions. So the sea battle was supposed to be filmed near Livorno, Italy. Many extras had apparently lied about being able to swim, and the first attempt to film the chariot race was on a set in Rome, and there were problems with the shadows and the racetrack surface. And one of the chariot's wheels came apart and the stuntman driving it was thrown into the air and killed. So MGM inherited the production when it took over the control of Metro Golden Meyer Studios. And the film budget was just getting out of control and halted production and relocated the shoot from Italy to California under the supervision of Irving Thalberg. 
So before they had returned from Italy, MGM would fire Matthias Barbin and stars George Walsh and Gertrude Olmsted. So after her return, First National hired her as an editorial director. And she also scripted several successful Colleen Moore pictures, including Sally, The Desert Flower, and Irene. Matthias remained at First National for two years, but left over limitations and signed with United Artists. And with her husband, she made one picture for them, which was called The Masked Woman. The Magic Flame in 1927 would be her last picture, and one of her best, due in part to Ronald Coleman's performance and Henry King's direction. A short woman with untamed brown hair and the love of Parisian fashion, she was also one of the first writer-directors and laid the groundwork for the later development of screenwriters becoming producers. A spiritualist with mystical bents, her scripts featured many heroes with a Christ-like demeanor, a believer in reincarnation, and always wore an opal ring when she wrote, convinced it would bring her ideas. Okay, up next we have Jean Gontier. Born Guinevere Gontier Liggett in Kansas City, Missouri, Gontier attended the Kansas City School of Oratory while in Kansas City. In 1904, she began her stage career. Gontier made her way to New York City where she began her career in live theater using the stage name Jean Gontier. And, her, and she first appeared in films between acting jobs with stock company tours. In 1906, Gontier was literally thrown into her first screen assignment when she was hired for a daredevil stunt, being filmed as a damsel thrown into a river for Biograph's The Paymaster. It was a one-reeler where she first met her longtime friend, Sidney Alcott and Frank Marin. After her first film role, she went back to stage acting, and then in 1907, Gontier became more involved in the fledgling silent film industry, working for... Callum Studios. She became Callum Star Actress, dubbed by the studio as a Callum Girl, and also became their most productive screenwriter in collaboration with director Sidney Olcott on numerous projects. By 1912, Gontier had become disillusioned with the new conditions at Callum and left to start her own company, Jean Gontier Feature Players. Tom Sawyer was the first of over 300 screenplays that Jean Gontier either wrote or produced or sold. In 1907, she wrote the script The Days of 61, the first film ever made about the American Civil War. That same year, she wrote the screenplay and acted in the first Ben-Hur film. At the time, there was no copyright law to protect authors, and she wrote in her autobiography about how the film industry infringed upon everything. As a result of the production of Ben-Hur, Harper and Brothers and the author's estate brought a lawsuit against the Callum Company, the Motion Picture Patents Company, and Gontier for copyright infringement. The suit, which eventually settled the question of American copyright law for all time, took years to make its way through the court system, but the United States Supreme Court finally ruled in favor of Harper's and Wallace and against the film company. Most notably, Gontier wrote and acted in 1912's From the Manger to the Cross, a film that Turner Classic Movies considers the most important silent film to deal with the life of Jesus Christ, and which has been selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. In December 1912, Gontier left the Callum Company and started the independent Jean Gontier Feature Players Company, along with her longtime film collaborator, Sidney Olcott, and her husband, Jack Clark. She was among a number of women in the silent film stars to start their own independent companies during this period, and we saw that with a couple of the directors. In early 1914, Sidney Olcott resigned as producer at Gontier's company to start his own, Sid Alcott International Features, and the cause of his falling out with Gontier remains unclear. 
and the Jean Gontier Feature Players Company continued until 1915. Notable works include The Civil War Era in 1912, A Daughter of the Confederacy, Mystery, Pine Camp, When Men Hate, For Ireland's Sake, A Daughter of Old Ireland, and The Eye of the Government. Gontier wrote and starred in many of the films her company produced, while Alcott is credited as the main director during this time. Gontier feature players became competitors of Callum and eventually faded into oblivion once Gontier signed with Universal Pictures and moved to Hollywood. In 1920, at the age of 35, and after writing 42 screenplays and performing in 87 films, Gontier explained her reasons for leaving. She was worn out, she lost enthusiasm, and of course, without enthusiasm, you can't progress. After leaving filmmaking, she worked as the film and drama critic for the Kansas City Post in 1919, before returning to live in Europe, where she remained for a number of years while writing her autobiography, Blazing the Trail. The work was serialized in 1928-1929 in the American magazine Women's Home Companion, and the manuscript is on display in the film library of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Gontier also penned two novels, Cabbages and Harlequins in 1929, and Sporting Lady in 1933. In 1914, June 11 was declared as Gontier Day at International Exposition of Motion Picture Arts. Up next, we have Bess Meredith. Meredith began her involvement in performing and writing at a really early age, and her father was a manager at a local theater, and she studied piano throughout her childhood. After encouragement from her English teacher, Meredith also pursued fiction writing, and at the age of 13, she approached the local newspaper editor about writing a fiction column. And each story she wrote for the paper earned her a dollar. Meredith began her career in show business in vaudeville as a comedian. And she most often sang or performed monologues while accompanying herself on the piano. A form she referred to as piano log. Meredith began her screen career as an extra in D.W. Griffith's Biograph Studios in New York before moving to Los Angeles in 1911. Meredith worked as an actress for five years, subsidizing her income with screenwriting. While most of this work was actually being an extra, her most prominent role was in the titular character in the four real Bess the Detectress in 1914 serials. Meredith met Wilfred Lucas in 1911 when he encouraged her to pursue screen acting. The year after, the two worked together on the film A Sailor's Heart in 1913, the first of many artistic collaborations. They were eventually given their production unit at Universal Studios, in which they produced the 30-reel-long Tray of Hearts serials. Meredith and Lucas had one child together, television writer John Meredith Lucas, and they divorced in 1927, following her return from supervising Ben-Hur. In 1918, Meredith and Lucas traveled to Australia to work with Australian sportsman Snowy Baker. They made three films together, The Man from Kangaroo, The Jackaroo of Coolabong, The Shadow of Lightning Ridge, the first two of which Meredith co-directed. She was arguably the first professional screenwriter to work in Australia. That's crazy. Meredith and director Michael Curtis met soon after his arrival in the United States. While both were working at Warner Brothers Studios, they were married in 1929 and unsuccessfully attempted to start a production unit at MGM Studios in 1946. Though often uncredited, Meredith contributed to several of Curtis's projects. Most notably, Curtis reported calling Meredith for input several times a day while working on his most successful film, a little film called Casablanca. Meredith and Curtis separated twice, once in 1941 and again in 1960. 
Throughout her time at MGM Studios, Meredith had mainly worked under Irving Thalberg. Thalberg is coming up a lot today. Upon his death in 1936, the new MGM executives dropped Meredith's contract. Rather than re-entering as a junior writer, as the new executives offered, wow, that's degrading, Meredith decided to retire from professional screenwriting. Despite this announcement, she has three credits after her alleged retirement. The Marco Zorro in 1940, That Night in Rio in 1941, and The Unsuspected in 1947. And last but certainly not least, Jeannie McPherson. McPherson was born Abby Jean McPherson in Boston, and as a teenager, she was sent to Mademoiselle de Jacques School in Paris, but she was forced to leave when her family fell on hard times. She then returned to the United States and began to look for a job. Uh, back in the United States, McPherson finished her degree at the Kenwood Institute in Chicago. It was there that she started her career as a dancer and a stage performer. She began her theatrical career in the chorus of the Chicago Opera House. I know where that is. Over the next few years, she took singing lessons and took whatever theater-related job she could find. However, she quickly became infatuated with film. She made her film debut in 1908 with a short film called Fatal Hour, directed by D.W. Griffith. D.W. Griffith has just discovered all of these women, it seems like. For the next year, she acted in many controversial roles in which she had to portray ethnicities other than her own. Let's talk about this for a second. This is kind of something that happens in Hollywood a lot, and as much as people don't want to hear it, it happens today still. Now, of course, they aren't doing the incredibly racist blackface that they were doing in many of the films, such as D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, but they're still allowing actors to portray races that especially are written not to be white. It's generally a white person. Sometimes can be people of color, but it's generally white people. And still, unfortunately, happens today. Sorry for that rant. McPherson had dark hair, so she was often cast as a gypsy or in Spanish roles. From 1908 to 1917, she racked up 146 acting credits. After Griffith, she went on to the old Universal Company, where she was a leading lady and got her first opportunity in 1913 when she wrote, directed, and starred in The Tarantula. She played the role of a Spanish-Mexican girl known as The Tarantula who would get men to become obsessed with her, get bored of them, and kill them in one bite. I know it's a little problematic, but I kind of want to see this movie. <laughs> Due to this film, she became the youngest director in the motion picture history. The film did, however, conclude her directing career. She continued at the old Universal Company for two years until her health caused her to break from the company. Upon her recovery, she found herself at Lasky Studios. However, she quickly sought out Cecil B. DeMille to see if she could act in his films. He told her, I am not interested in Star McPherson, but I am interested in writer McPherson. And from that point on, she focused on writing. DeMille and McPherson formed what became as one of the most influential and long-lasting partnerships in the industry. She penned 30 of DeMille's next 34 films. Some of their most notable were Rose of the Rancho, The Girl of the Golden West with Mabel Van Buren, The Cheat with Sesu Hayakawa, The Golden Chance with Wallace Reed, Joan the Woman with Geraldine Farrar, a Romance of the Redwoods with Mary Pickford. She thoroughly believed that motion picture owed its psychology to D.W. Griffith. It owed its dramatic picture scenario construction to that of DeMille. And in 1927, she was one of the founding members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. In 1946, McPherson became ill with cancer while researching Unconquered, a historical drama, and because of her illness, had to stop working. 
She died that August in Los Angeles at the age of 60 and is buried in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Hollywood. She was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Hollywood Forever Cemetery is a very famous cemetery and they actually often do movie screenings in the cemetery. So those are some of the early writers of the silent film era and like directors they seem to have their hands in many things and were often involved in several aspects of the film. A lot of them were actually actors too which is very interesting and while the theme of more intense subject matter wasn't as prevalent here but it's still something that followed for some of these women like we were talking about some of the themes that they had brought into their works especially the loose women themes. (laughs) Uh, And the next episode is going to be about the studio system and the Hollywood golden age which many of these women writers kind of suffer the same fate as women directors did at the time. This is kind of a longer episode. I kind of went on some tangents. There was actually a lot of information about these women, which was great. Uh, We're still, like I said, having a little bit of lack of diversity here. But I'm actually trying to work on a special episode where I'm focusing only on women of color, not just writers. I think I'm just going to gather a bunch of uh, every, all the women of color that I can find who are women filmmakers. So look forward to that coming as well. So next we'll have the second wave of writers in the industry and maybe that one won't be as long but actually I'm really shocked at the amount of information that is about these women writers. I'm not really sure why I couldn't even find this much information on directors and editors as well but thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. This has been The Celluloid Ceiling, a podcast researched, created, and edited by me. Special thanks to my dad, Mark Castaneda, for doing the music.